Well, dear friends, we walk through a passage today, which is um, an interesting passage. This is Luke 11 and verses 24 through 28. And today we'll be dealing with the instability of mere moral reformation. The danger of merely just making changes morally, uh, practicing a merely moral religion, just seeking to get your life better, seeking to work through self-help strategies and not recognize your greatest need. Your greatest need, which is your relationship with your Creator, the one who has granted you life, the one who has blessed you, the one whose air you breathe, the one whose food that you eat, the one for whom you can look around yourself and see the creation all around you and to see the ways in which that creation screams and declares the glory of the Creator. And part of that creation that even screams and declares the glory of God is, is you as one who is a part of His creation. One who is made in His image. One who is designed, who exists for the purpose of glorifying God. The Lord desires that you would glorify Him in all ways. But to merely make moral reformation apart from regeneration, to make moral reformation apart from true change, true repentance from sin, truly trusting in Christ alone, merely brings about pride in the heart of the man that seeks to make that reformation. And the man seeking to make such change can find himself in a situation that is even worse than when he began. Let's look at this passage, Luke 11 and verses 24 through 28. It says this, it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. We have a passage here that I thought it would be important to focus on this individually and focus on this particularly because if you're not careful in passing over it, you can greatly misinterpret it. You can greatly misunderstand it. And I'd say there's a great many people who have interpreted this passage incorrectly. And even though they may apply it in ways that are beneficial and true, we must first understand this passage within its context and where it is that Luke lays it out here within this gospel. And I believe what we have before us here in these short verses is a parable of Jesus. And we don't have the term parable that is listed here, but you have to understand that you don't always have to have a word in Scripture to declare what something is. It can have the details of a parable. It can have the aspects of a parable to make it a parable. Um, a parable is a story that Jesus tells for the purpose of making an illustration. He's trying to make a comparison between two things. And I think it's particularly important in this passage that we understand it as a, a parable. Um, it meets these basic qualifications, but it also affects how it is that we interpret a passage like this. And this is important from a hermeneutical perspective. This is important in the way in which we're going to glean from this what it says, what the author intended for us to understand. You don't interpret a parable in the same way that you would uh, an epistle, one of the writings of Paul that he's writing to a church. When you're looking at the writings of Paul, you're looking at an epistle as it's laid out, you're going to be very uh, particular to the details. You're going to seek to look at the nuances and the details of what's written there to glean that interpretation. But when I'm reading something like a parable, you're going to do the very opposite or almost the opposite of that. You're not trying to look at every possible detail in the parable and glean something from each of those, but instead you're going to look at the main point. You're going to look at the broad picture. There's a main point or idea that's being told within a parable, and that's what you need to glean. That's what you need to focus on. There's not 10 points in a parable. If you look at every detail, you're going to walk away with 10 points, and you're going to misunderstand what the author is saying. Instead, we try to find a main point. And the whole story is put together for that main 
point. And some of the greatest errors in parables happen because this principle is not followed. We've seen that in, in some of those previously that would interpret uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan and interpret every little detail and say, well, the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul and, and the wine and the oil is the law and the gospel and find all these incredible details that are, are, are not really the point. The, the point of that parable, as we saw it when we walked through it, was how would you want someone to treat you? Even your worst enemy, if you were lying there, destitute and helpless, how would you want them to treat you? And the way in which you would want them to treat you, that is how you should treat them. And that was Jesus' point in that story. The details in that story just go and emphasize and help them to understand that point that is being made. They're not all there for us to go and find some nuance in each and every one of these details. Um, this is one in particular where some people have really gone off the rails in trying to you know, come up with all different aspects of demonology and how it is that we can see how demons are working and how they're going into this person and out of this person. And then we've got these waterless places that they're going through. And people write pages and pages on that topic. I remember a book that I ran into many years ago by a man named Richard Ng. He was, he was an incredible man that could write so much uh, about which the scriptures did not talk about. All these things that you may not understand about the spiritual world, he, he found the need to go and fill them in for us. And when he would come across a passage like this, he would completely divorce it from its context. That's not what I want us to do. He would seek to find every little detail in this little parable and seek to tell us how we can understand how the demons work and tell us how to deal with them in these waterless places and how to remove them from here and keep the seven from coming in. That's, that's not the purpose. That's not what you're to do with something like this. And of course, just prior to this, we had the whole strong man, and we talked about the ways in which people misunderstand that passage as well, that, oh, I need to go and tie up this strong man demon, so then we can deal with this one down here, and totally misunderstanding these passages and their, their context. Jesus is not coming to us here and giving us an instruction about how it is that we're going to go about fighting demons in our life or how it is that we're going to go about fighting demons and, and going about that. He is seeking to make a point here. Um, and I think it's important that as we remember the confession as it talks in, in chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8, it talks about what we should do when we come across passages that are more difficult or passages that don't have as much light as other passages, and it says that we should go and look at other passages that grant us more light. We don't go to the passages that have less light or less understanding or aren't as clear, all right, and then go and seek to come up with something that we would not find anywhere else in the scriptures. Let's review that real quick. Chapter 1, paragraph 7 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says, All things in scripture are not alike plain to themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So the things having to do with salvation are very clear and they are able to be understood so long as it is revealed, it is illuminated. We're not denying the fact that the Spirit must work in your life to give you understanding of these truths. But considering paragraph 9, it says the infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true or full sense of any Scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak of it more clearly. And so when you consider the context of this passage, and you also consider the context of the other passage that is most similar to this, which is the same parable in the book of Matthew, it is Jesus speaking and giving a description and a comparison to the generation of people that are there. The Jews in the first century there in Israel. That is the parable that's being discussed here. There are going to be applications that we can understand in this passage to you individually. There's ways in which we can see how this applies to your life how it applies to those that are trusting in man-made religion. But first and foremost, we need to understand this within its context. So it might have been a curveball for some of you there, so I'm going to seek to emphasize this and support it here. We're going to look in Matthew 12, 38 
through 45, where we see this, this also occurring. And it says this, I'm going to begin in Matthew 12, 38 through 45, which this is a sister passage to the area that we're in right now in Luke. And it says this, that some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So we have Jesus interacting with the people that are there, and he's speaking of this generation. He's saying this generation is going to be judged by the people of Nineveh because, because Jonah preached to them and they repented and someone greater than Jonah is here. And then he talks of the, the sign of Jonah, which is going to be his death, burial, and resurrection, which is like Jonah that was consumed by the fish and then spit out upon the land. And also the queen of the south that went forward during the time of, uh, of Solomon. And, and, and she will be in judgment as as well and so we're dealing here with this generation people that are there at this time and jesus goes on in verse 43 to say this which is the next verse when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none then it says i will return to my house from which i came when it comes it finds the house empty swept and put in order then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this evil generation. And so you see Jesus apply this parable directly to this generation. The way in which he's using the term generation here throughout this context is the people that are there around him at this time, the generation of people that are existing at this time. He applies this parable for us, I believe, there in Matthew um, chapter chapter 12. And so we need to be mindful of this. And the context is very similar here in Luke. You're going to have um, just a few verses down the statement of the sign of Jonah coming shortly afterwards. So we're going to, we're going to see applications where this applies to someone individually, but the way in which we're seeing this and understanding this is the first century Jewish people that were there that were hearing this. Um, you're going to find applications in dealing with moralism, but we first and foremost need to understand this within the context of the first century when Jesus is giving this parable. So let me unpack this. There's two points that I want us to pull out of this. We see the hope of mere moral reformation. Those that seek mere moral reformation, whether it be culturally, amongst the people group, or individually, there is a hope that that is going to help them to get all things right, that that's going to put their house in order, and all things are going to be good to go. That is the reality of all of man's religion. Remember, there's two religions in the world. There's many more religions than two. No, there's two religions in the world. There's the religion whereby man seeks to make himself right before God, whereby man seeks through his own self-determination, through his own effort, to make himself right before God, to give himself a right standing, and there is the religion, the true religion, that says man is incapable in, of making himself right. Man on his best day is insufficient. Regardless of how he compares with anyone else, man is insufficient. And so mere moral reformation, apart from regeneration, apart from a change, apart from faith and repentance in Christ Jesus, leads to great consequences. So secondly, we'll see the consequence of mere moral reformation. And this is effectual upon an individual life, and this is also effectual upon uh, a culture or a people, because you must remember that culture, a society, is merely their religion being lived out. Culture is merely religion being lived out. That, that's not original to me, but that's, that's what culture is. So let's look at that first point, the hope of mere moral reformation, and we see that in the life of this person in the parable, this, this desire just to clean things up, 
just, just to get the house in order, just, just to straighten my life up so that I can be more successful. Verses 24 and 25 of Luke 11. When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. The fact is that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel there in the century, as they were, were a people that had a house that they had swept up, a house that had been then cleaned up. This is a nation, this is a people at this time that had removed the physical symbols of idolatry. They were pretty much all gone, all right? Remember, let's, let's look back at just, ju just a bit of the history there starting in Egypt. Remember, they were freed out of Egypt. Think of Israel, right? Think of Israel in light of what we read in the New Old Testament. They're freed out of Egypt. They're set free to go and to worship God. Moses is on, on the mountain, and yet it doesn't take very long, and they begin to go and practice idolatry. They begin to go and gather for themselves gold, gathering gold for themselves. That had been given to them by the Egyptians. Remember, the plagues that happened, the Egyptians are just throwing their wealth at the Jews, saying, please leave. J j just go away. Take all of our money with us. And remember, all of that wealth that was being thrown at them was gathered by Egypt because Joseph had interpreted a dream of Pharaoh, and they had gained the wealth of the world. They had great, a, an incredible amount of wealth. So you have this wealth that's being passed down to them, in my opinion, from what the Lord had done in the life of Joseph in, in interpreting the dream of Pharaoh. But it doesn't take long, and they are in idolatry. All right. It, it said that it, it, didn't, it, took, it took a few years to get them out of Egypt, but it took many years to get the Egypt out of the people. And there are those that even died in the wilderness, those that were the people of God that were called out, were called to trust and to believe, and they, they did not believe. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this in Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. For, the, for, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did swear that he would not, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable because of their unbelief. We see that also in the judges. A little time goes by and you have the judges. You have the time where there are no kings of Israel. And what is the phrase that is said over and over during the time of the judges? That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king at this time. And you see the idolatry just flowing through that time period. You see even, even the, the, the great men and women that the Lord is using to accomplish this purpose. You see even the idolatry amongst their lives. You see the sin that is there within the lives of even those that the Lord is using. Then the people did what? They began to look at the nations around them. They desired to be like the nations around them. They looked around. They, they saw the wealth and the extravagance that they saw, even the, uh, the, the warfare that the nations were in, and they desired that. They desired a king like the nations. They did not want to trust God. They did not want to see the Lord as their king. They did not want to trust the Lord to give them a king. They demanded a king, and they demanded a king like the nations, and they were given one, and his name was Saul. He was a great warrior. He was an attractive man. He was one that from the outward, outward looks, he looked like the perfect king, but he was a man who practiced idolatry. He was a man that didn't take long. When he ran into trouble, he was practicing divination. After that, they had King David, the greatest of all the kings that was given to them. Even he had some disasters within his life, resulting in Solomon, and a man who was wise, given great wisdom, one of the wisest men that ever lived, but a man who lacked self-control, a man who began to accrue for himself a harem of women, a, a man who began to look at the nations around him and began to act like them, resulting in a civil war, a civil war that happened after the death of Solomon splitting the northern kingdom off from the southern kingdom. And this idolatry continued. The northern kingdom was taken off into captivity, breaking the covenant. The southern kingdom was taken off into captivity. And you have this time 
of captivity where the people are beginning to think through the religion. They're beginning to think through what's happening, what, 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 is, what, is, going, what is going on. They're placed back in the land. They're given the land back. They're, they're given the opportunity to be there. And you have, during this time, a work amongst the people to remove physical idolatry, to no longer have the high places, to no longer have Ashroth, to no longer um, have Baal, to no longer be practicing uh, this divination, to no longer be, be doing... When you get to the first century... You don't have that anymore. You, you have a house that has been, in many ways, cleaned up. You have a house that is much more moral. You have sacrifices that are, that are going on. It's been swept up. It's been cleaned up. But there was incredible idolatry during that time. It wasn't the physical idolatry where people were creating for themselves so much these idols and bowing down and worshiping them. You, you didn't have them practicing the ceremonies that they were practicing from the other Canaanite religions around them, but you had an idolatry of a people that had cleaned up things, that, that had made things more presentable. They had a, a bit of a moral reformation during this time, but you had pride amongst the people, pride amongst the leadership at that time that resulted in a rejection of the Messiah. Here is Jesus, the one to whom all of the ceremonies pointed. Here is Jesus, the one to whom the fullness of the law pointed. Here is Christ, the one that every single festival that they practiced was pointing to in some way. We've walked through portions of the Old Testament, and you can see this. You can see the ways in which these, these festivals, these sacrifices, this whole ceremonial law was pointing to Christ Jesus. But there was a people that was there that had taken even the good religion given to them by God and began to practice it in a way that said, I am good, I am sufficient, my deeds are good enough. And the one to whom all of those ceremonies pointed was standing in front of them. And he was rejected. They denied him. They wanted him not. Why? Because he was not practicing the religion that they desired. He was not practicing a religion that was pointing to their goodness through their actions. He was not practicing a religion that was taking upon himself the extra rules that they were putting on themselves. Remember, that's what they did. They looked at God's law, and they looked at it and made it just merely outward, not looking at the internal. And then they went ahead and added some more outward actions to it. So that on, on the Sabbath day, you were not even to, to carry your bed. Well, that was not in the Old Testament. That wasn't a rule. That wasn't an application of it. But they sought to add to it. Just merely, merely saying to honor the Sabbath day was not sufficient for them. They had to add to this. But in the process, they were diminishing the law. They were making the law less than it is. And these are the leaders that we see that he is battling with at this time. These are the ones that he's speaking of even in this, 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 this parable here. They had a religion of mere morality. They had a religion that deemed themselves sufficient because of their actions. They could look at the sin of another and say, but look at what I'm doing. Look at my prayers. Look at my efforts. Look at my alms. So you have the practice here of mere morality, the practice here of, of legalism. This is the generation that Jesus is speaking of. Remember, I made the emphasis there in Matthew, in Matthew 12, that this parable is applied by Jesus to this generation. And the generation there needs to be understood as the people that existed there in that time. That is a normal understanding of that term. And as we walk through that passage in the context of that passage, it's discussed numerous times of those that will be even judging that generation. It's not just talking about a, a group of people that may exist amongst many generations. It's talking about a people that is there at a particular time. This is the consequence of pride. This is the consequence of mere man-made religion. But we see there the consequence of mere moral reformation. Let's look there in verse 26 of this passage. It says, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than 
the first. And we do have a detail there here that we need to understand, and that is, it says seven other spirits. How do we understand that? The, the term seven here is not intended for us to interpret it as, as the exact number seven. I know some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute, we need to interpret the Bible literally. It says seven, so it's got to be exactly seven. Well, you need to interpret the Bible literally when you should interpret it literally, but at other times, that's not how you need to interpret it. And parables are one of the instances many times that we don't interpret it literally. Psalm 119 and verse 164, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. This is talking about a, a fullness or a, a greatness of the praise. It's not saying, okay, exactly seven times I'm going to praise you. It's just, this, is, this, is a, a, this is a device that is used to communicate this idea of fullness or greatness. Proverbs 24 and verse 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked <clears throat> stumble in times of calamity. Again, it's not the righteous falls exactly seven times. It is there may be a greatness of falling in the life of the one who is righteous, but they will, they will rise up. They will stand up. We understand that to be understood rightly, not that they're that way because they rise up, but they're rising up because of what God is doing within them. Daniel 3 and 19 as another example. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Again, this is the idea of a greatness. This is a fullness of the fire. There is great significant heat coming forward. This doesn't mean that they had a thermometer and it was 500 degrees now, so now it's going to be 3,500 degrees. And it's 1,000 degrees more than melting steel. The idea is just greatness here. And what's being communicated here in the passage that we're looking at with the seven other spirits that are more evil coming forward is the danger of mere moral reformation. The danger of mere moral reformation, just seeking to clean your life up and straighten things up without recognizing your sinfulness and your hopelessness through your own actions and your need for a Messiah your need to trust in Christ alone. This is the danger that lurks around every corner for mortal man. Just mortal man who is not, has not seen his sin. We are natural born legalists. This is our default position. This is where we naturally go. We naturally go to self-justification. We naturally look to ourselves to try to find ways in which what we did is justified or the sin that we did is understandable given this reason or that reason. But the real change that must occur in the life of a mortal man, a fallen man, is to recognize his sinfulness before God. The ways in which he has broken God's law. And you can have entire cultures and societies that have removed certain aspects of the consequences of sin, cultures that have removed this particular sin or that particular sin. But if the pride is not dealt with, if you're not looking at God's law rightly, you can walk into mere moralism. I can tell you this, dear friends. Satan is fine with you doing that. Satan is involved in these various false religions in the world. He is just fine with you walking around and cleaning yourself up just a little bit to go down the road and to keep walking in your rebellion against God. Pride is a sin just as adultery is a sin. Pride is a sin just as drunkenness is a sin. And the people that were here in this first century that were involved in the Jewish religion, that were involved in this religion that was granted to them by a decree of God that they would practice this religion. And yet they practiced it and saw not their sin, saw Christ as immoral. C can you imagine that? Being so blind in your understanding. Being so, so, so distorted in your religion that you see the actions of Jesus. You see Jesus healing people on the Sabbath day. And you find something wrong with it. Here's a man that's been crippled for decades. Here's a man who's been blind from his youth. He's given sight. This one is given the ability to walk. But, but yeah, 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 I know you did that. There's no, remember, there's no question that Jesus did the miracles. The people of the day didn't deny he did these miracles. Remember in the last passage, they were attributing his miracles to Satan. 
They didn't deny he healed this person that was crippled. They were angry. Why, but why didn't you just wait till tomorrow? You could have just done it tomorrow. Such ignorance. But that is the consequence of mere morality. That is the consequence that fell upon the people at this time and their trust in themselves. And it resulted in the judgment of God. It wasn't 40 years after the ministry of Christ that the judgment of God fell down there upon Jerusalem. And it was the Roman general Titus that came forward and invaded Jerusalem. And it was sacked. It was destroyed. The people were sent out. Everything was damaged. There is one wall that is still standing at this point. There is a prayer wall that is still there. It is but one piece that is still standing. Everything was destroyed. As Jesus says, not one stone will be on top of the other. And that's not intended to mean that there wasn't one stone anywhere on top of the other. There obviously are still stones that are on top of the other. The point was everything is going to get destroyed. Everything is going to get damaged. The right to the land was removed from the people at that time. They had broken the covenant. The temple and all the corresponding ceremonies, everything that was involved in the temple worship at that time was removed. Why was it removed? Because Christ had come. Christ was the fruition of this. And Christ is the one to whom all of this pointed. Remember that temple as it was practiced, or in the tabernacle as it's practiced, you have these sin offerings that are being given and you have the flames of those offerings burning and burning. And you go and you bring your sacrifice. And it is, it is clear what's going on there, that, that, that your sin is being imputed to this animal. This animal is destroyed. It is thrown upon the fire. That is a picture that is given. That is what you deserve. What's happening to this goat, what's happening to this lamb, that should happen to you. It's going there upon this animal, and it's going into the fire. And it is burning, but the fire continues to burn the sacrifices continued to be brought forward, lambs in the morning, lambs in the evening, each and every day. And it screamed out with all of the sounds, with all of the smells, with all of the sights. It screamed out the insufficiency of these sacrifices. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats forgives no sins. These were insufficient in and of themselves, but they pointed to the one who was sufficient. And Christ is the one who was sufficient. Remember, these sacrifices would happen, and you weren't able to do a sacrifice and then walk into the most holy place. You would be struck dead if you did that. That veil continued to be there, but it was at the death of Christ that that veil was torn. That veil was ripped apart. He said, it is finished. And no, we do not believe that the temple needs to be rebuilt, and that in some way these these, these ceremonies need to be practiced once again. That is not a Christian belief. That is not a belief that has been understood by the church prior to, I would say, maybe the middle of the 19th century. That is a new, new idea. Christ is sufficient. Christ fulfilled all that was necessary. But those involved in this mere moral religion that saw not where it pointed denied the one who came to whom it pointed. Mere moral religion is useless to unregenerate men. It may clean your life up a little bit, but it does not deal with your heart. It does not deal with your greatest problem, which is your relationship with God. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the Son's of disobedience. If you see this spiritual imagery that is given here, right, this is where you were, Christian, prior to coming to faith in Christ Jesus. Those of you who know not Christ, th this is where you are. You are described in the scriptures by the Apostle Paul as being dead in your trespasses and sins. You are, from a spiritual standpoint, like a, like a zombie that is moving around but, but you are dead. You are, you are not alive. You're going through your life. You're doing these different things. You're doing what you think to be good actions. You're trying to stay away from these bad actions. But from a spiritual standpoint, you are dead. I'm not saying you're as bad as you possibly could be. All of us could be worse. 
The most evil person that you can imagine could have been worse than that person was. But from a spiritual standpoint, looking at God's law, you are dead in your trespasses in sin. So it's not solved by just making some moral reformations. It's not solved by getting a little self-help. It's not solved by God getting pepped up and trying to change this thing or that thing. The state cannot be solved within a culture or an individual merely through outward reformation. It must be inward. The damage is deep. The damage is significant. If you could merely make the change, do what was necessary through mere outward reformation, then Jesus didn't need to come. It was completely unnecessary for Christ to clothe himself in flesh and dwell amongst us. That was not necessary, but that was necessary. Now, on account of that, you must recognize that mere reformation on the outside, mere just trying to change this and that, it is a requirement that you see your hopelessness. Your hopelessness apart from Christ. Your hopelessness in keeping God's law. Your deadness to sin. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, So long as a person is dead in trespasses and sin, his heart is untroubled about spiritual things. He has no fear about the future. He has no anxiety about his soul. Thoughtless, solid, reckless insensibility about internal things is one of the worst symptoms of the devil reigning over man's soul. This doesn't mean the man doesn't have any, don't walk away from that and say, well, this person may have anxiety, this person may have difficulty. No, I mean true spiritual anxiety, true recognition of your situation and your state, which will result in a no longer trusting in yourself and a trusting in Christ alone. See this danger. See the danger of mere moral reformation apart from regeneration, apart from a real change, apart from repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. There are those who have sought to merely reform their lives, merely to, to change their lives. This is put out as religion by many, many people. There are many that will put out all kinds of curriculums and put it out in such a way that it can just kind of fit into any little religion because we have these steps and if you just follow them, then you're going to have this particular result. And there may be steps you can follow to solve this problem or that problem in your life, but if you're not seeing your real problem, you will trade one sin for the other and believe that you're in a situation with God that you are not in. Remember the story, we'll, we'll get to it in a few chapters, but Luke 18 and verses 19 through 14, this is two people that went to pray. It says, he says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Look at that detail there. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They, they looked at their actions and saw the ways in which their lives were cleaned up, how they had straightened things up, how they were doing better, and they looked with others in contempt that weren't meeting their standard. So as this two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like, one, like, like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This Pharisee practiced man's religion. This, this Pharisee practiced mere moral reformation. Work harder, do better, strive more. You can do it. Just go. This is, this is most preaching that you will hear. Most preaching is going to tell you, you can do it. Just try harder. Work a little better. Do this. I was looking over um, some social media on various churches, and I began to see, well, here's our series on, on, on marriage. And the person had just gone through a series of song, Proverbs, rather, and began to just list all the things that you need to do in your marriage, as though that's how I'm, I just follow this recipe, and everything's going to work out just fine. Well, the problem is, 
is that you're not going to be able to follow all of those things. The fact is that, that, that your marriage is going to point to Christ and your need of Christ. It's going to point to your need of that. And so if you just go forward with the religion, is that it's just go for it, you can do it, try harder, try better. That is a hamster wheel. That is a hamster wheel of religion that will lead you exhausted, that will leave you striving and striving. No, it is necessary. It is necessary to see your insufficiency. Not that you stay there and say, okay, what's the point? What does it matter? But rather, so you see Christ in what he has done. That even your motivation to walk in obedience is grounded in a gratefulness for, of who Christ is, of what Christ has done. That, that is key there, Christian. That your motivation for obedience is not to make yourself better, make yourself stronger, and to do this and the list of things that you're going to accomplish and how you're going to be better than this person or that person, and I'm going to follow this list coming from this motivational speaker, but rather out of an obedience to Christ, and you walk through that and you see your insufficiencies, you see the ways you fall short, and it reminds you of Christ and the grace that has been granted to you. And that should drive you to walk in obedience more. It should drive you to thank God God, even more for the grace that has been shown to you. For God has shown you once more an area in which grace has been shown to your life. J.C. Ryle gives this warning. He says this, there is no safety except through Christianity. The house must not only be swept, a new tenant must be introduced. The outward life must not only be decorated with formal trappings of religion, the power of vital religion must be experienced in the inner man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. By faith. Where do you stand, dear friends? H have you been changed? Does the Lord reside within your heart? Ha have, have you been awakened? Have you seen the greatness and the heaviness of your sins? Not just the consequences of your sins. Not just the ways in which your, your sins make your life inconvenient. Not just the ways in which your sins make your life difficult and you wish that things could be a little bit better, a little more tidy, a little more orderly. Have you seen the consequences of your sins and seen your need of Christ? entrusted in Christ. There is a temptation even now, going back from a cultural standpoint, to, to merely look around at the culture and say, you know, things were better 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Well, if you look, if you remember some of the things going on 50, 60, 70 years ago in this country, in a lot of ways, some things are doing better right now. But there's other areas that you can look around with, with great frustration and you can say, why is this being allowed? You're seeing this news story of, of, of something in a library or this happening in a school and there's a frustration that is there and there's angst that is going on amongst people. And there's, there's a reality of the, the, the effects of Christianity and it happens in a culture. There, there, is, there is, within this culture, you had the first great awakening, you had the second great awakening, you had reformation that happened, people that were genuinely saved, people that were affected. It, it affected this culture. Remember, when this country was founded, it, this was a rough culture. Th this is a culture where when two senators disagreed with each other, they would walk outside and shoot at each other. And that was accepted as, as normal. Th that was regular behavior. That was considered uh, the way in which gentlemen would behave. There are changes that happened in this culture because of the work of the gospel and it overflowed. It overflowed and even affected the lives of those that did not truly uh, trust in Christ. And you have this ebb and flow within cultures where there's an influence of Christianity. You see, listen, in Europe, emphasis and changes that happened. This, this pagan people that was in Europe, uh, people painting themselves blue, running around with um, doing all kinds of pagan behaviors and this work of the gospel that happened and changed. And you see so much of the effects of this, but then you have a people that then begins to forget those things, but they still are experiencing many of those blessings, and then you begin to continue in a particular culture, and you have rather this, this effects of walking back into paganism, forgetting 
We're, we're, we're walking into that now in the culture, and there's a cry of some that we just need to regain this moralism. We just need to replace this with what it was during this time of this nominal religion. That's not how things work. It's not how cultures are changed. That's not how they're, they're affected. The, the church must work within the culture through the means that God has given, and the means God has given is the gospel of Christ Jesus. There can be absolutely no compromise on that whatsoever. The gospel is what must change people. You can't control who is converted. You can't control who is affected. Remember, the, the, the kingdom of God is like one who is throwing seed out, and you're, you're one who may declare the gospel to this person or to that person, but you, you cannot affect the change upon that person. You can declare the truth. I, I, I can declare the gospel to you as I have. And I have called some of you to trust in Christ, to, to see your sin and to trust in him. But I cannot make you. I cannot change you. If I merely put external pressure upon you to make you change your moral behavior, it, you will still be lost. You will still be dead. The moment that external pressure is not there, you will see what's in the heart of that person. The same here is true with a culture like this. There must be change from within. There must not trust in a mere moralism. We must trust God. We must trust God even in times as this to, to walk in faithfulness, to walk in faithfulness regardless of the cost. Most especially, dear friend, I would encourage you to guard yourself from a, a mere moralism, one that merely seeks to clean the outside of the cup. Think of the danger the illustration that Jesus gives, cleaning the outside of the cup. How much more dangerous that is. Th think about how much th this man was, was in a better state in, 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 his, in, his, in the state in which he wasn't cleaned up than he was when he cleaned himself up. What is more dangerous, a, a cup that is filthy on the outside and the inside or the cup that is cleaned up on the outside? Well, you drink out of a cup. The inside is filthy, the inside is disgusting, but you look upon that cup and you think, well, this is, this is a decent cup, this is a good cup, and you're su susceptible to all of it that is within it. But if you see the outside of the cup filthy, there's a reminder that uh, this, is, this is vile, this is not good. And that's the danger of man's religion. It's the danger of mere moralism. So it tells you that I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good here. I'm, I'm doing all right. The outside is shiny and it is clean. And you're forgetting what, what's inside Remember how Jesus, what he compared the Pharisees to, to whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed, you might not understand a whitewashed tomb. Maybe you think of a, you know, a gravestone, someone kind of cleaned it up, right? You've probably been in an old graveyard. You thought, someone should clean this up. Maybe that's a good idea. That's not what he's talking about. These, these tombs were above the ground. They would even be used by whole families. And when someone died, they would be put within their and then as that person decomposed, the next person would be put in there, and you would have this horrendous, if you've ever been to New Orleans, you've probably seen this, if you've been around some of the cemeteries there. You don't want to be around the cemetery uh, when there's a flooding or a hurricane. Just, just trust me on that, because you smell death. You, you smell the, the disgust of the rot there. But imagine just, just the, the foolishness of, you know what? This, this cemetery is disgusting. This cemetery, let, let's really clean the outside of these tombs. But what good is that? They're full of decomposition. They're, they're, they're full of death. That is the illustration that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. They, they worked on the outside. They strove for the outside. But they forgot what was in her. They forgot what was inside. And that's what is most crucial. That's what's most crucial for you, dear friends. It is most crucial to see the need for that inter-reformation, that, that, that interchange, that, that inter-effect. It is only then, you notice this in that passage, how the demon calls it his house. Assumed this is my residence, this is where I am. No, the need is for Christ to reside within you. The need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be, to be made alive, to be, to be given life. And that comes but through one pathway. There's but one way that you can go to, to gain that. And it's not through mere moral reformation. It's by faith and repentance in Christ Jesus that you would see the ways in which you fall short of God's standards. 
Not just a, well, you know, I know you're a sinner. I know nobody's perfect. No, I have, I have sinned against you. What does David say? You alone against have I sinned. Of course he sinned against other people. He sinned against Uriah. He stole his wife. But in a primary sense, it was against God that he had sinned. And that's his emphasis there. That's what you must see. Mere moral reformation doesn't heal the relationship with God. That comes alone through Christ Jesus and seeing Christ and all he has done and seeing Christ as the lamb to which all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed. To see Christ as the one who is sufficient, the spotless lamb that was given, that was sacrificed on your behalf, that you could be saved, that the wrath that you deserve would fall upon Christ, that had fallen upon Christ. In the life that he lived, one of perfect righteousness, that you would gain that benefit. That is what Christ has done for all who would trust in him. He has taken upon himself the wrath of God that it may not fall upon you, dear friend, and he has lived a life that is perfect because you didn't. And he has gained for you the blessing of perfect life, perfectly keeping the law of God, that that may be imputed into your account, that it may be granted to you, not gained through any effort of your own, Repenting of your sin, metanoia is the word that we use there. That's the, the Greek word. It's, it's to, to, to repent, to, to first and foremost, it is a change of mindset. I would change, I'm going this direction. I'm going to repent. I'm going to do an about face. I'm, I'm going the other direction. I'm going to stop trusting in my moralism. I'm going to stop trusting in man's religion, stop trusting in my efforts. Trust in Christ. Christ as sufficient. Christ, the one to whom all the ceremonial law pointed. Christ, the one who has been granted that you can be saved if you will but trust in him, if you will but believe in him. There is sufficient grace for you, and there is peace with God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you grateful for Christ, grateful for his blessing, grateful for his goodness and all he has done on behalf of his people. We thank you for the greatness of the grace that is in Christ. That grace that is greater than all of our sins. I pray for all under the sound of my voice that they would consider Christ. Consider the greatness of his righteousness, his perfectness, his sufficiency. That they would see their insufficiency. And they would see Christ as one who has done all that is necessary. That they would but trust in him. And be saved. And for all Christians, that they would be trusting in Christ, even in their sanctification. As one who has done all that is necessary for them, but even in their walk, they would be trusting in Him, walking in obedience and gratefulness on account of what Christ has done. We pray this in the name of our blessed Lord Christ Jesus.